Welcome to another exciting podcast brought to you by Bayside Christian Church. Uh, you can all be seated. I'm going to be uh, speaking tonight on resurrection. Funny that, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I don't think there's any greater privilege, really, than being able to preach on Resurrection Sunday. That's got to be the best, the best day in the calendar, hasn't it? Um, I'm going to be preaching on resurrection, the Christian hope. And um, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to split it up into three sections. And the three sections uh, all come under three symbols. Now, being uh, Easter Sunday, of course, this is the day that we traditionally celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And Christianity has a number of symbols to it. And, of course, the most obvious and the most enduring one is the symbol of the cross. And that symbol of the cross is the, is the cross we know where Christ died. But we also have another symbol, which is the empty tomb. And there's another third symbol, which we'll be looking at uh, this evening, which is heavenly fire, the fire coming down from heaven. So we're going to split it up into those three, and we're going to have a look at the Christian hope. But first of all, what I want to do is just pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray, Lord God, that as we look at the word today, you will just open up our hearts, Lord, and hope will explode in our spirits, Lord. Hope will explode in our souls, Lord, in Jesus' name, Lord, as we see the awesome plan unveiling before us, Father, of what you put into your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the first symbol that we're going to be having a look at uh, is the symbol of the cross. Now, I've got a lot of scriptures today. I've got six pages of notes. I normally go over time when I've got four. So we're going to rattle through these, all right? But I, th- I feel it's really important that we actually look at the Word rather than just talk about the Word. So we're going to be reading quite a bit of the Word today, and, uh, and I hope you're going to keep up with me. It should be on the screen very shortly anyway. So um, the first symbol we're going to have a look at, of course, is the cross. And this symbol represents atoning sacrifice. This is where Jesus gave his life on the cross for the forgiveness of the sins of the whole world. And in 1 John 2 and verse 2, it says, He himself is that sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Now, atonement is the central message of the Bible. You'll find atonement runs right the way through the Bible, from the very beginning right to the very end. It is the major, major theme of the Scriptures. Simply put, atonement means to cover. That's really, in its most simple form, just means to cover over, to cover something up. But in its broader sense, in the sense particularly as we look at what Jesus has done on the cross, atoning for our sins and for our failures, is that it covers all of our sins, all of our sins, all of our failures. The first time that we see atonement working is in Genesis chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. It's working. Look at that. Brilliant. All right. Do you like the symbol of the cross behind? That's just to remind you that we're on the symbol of the cross. All right. So Genesis, 22, uh, Genesis 3, 21 to 22. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Then the Lord God said, Look at the human beings that have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take of the fruit of the tree of life and eat it, and they will live forever? This was after 
God had given the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, what they did is that's exactly what they did. They took it and they ate it and sin entered into their lives. Sin entered into the human race. And so we see God right here. What he does is he takes an animal, he sacrifices an animal, spills its blood, then skins it and clothes Adam and Eve. When he clothes Adam and Eve, that's an atonement. He's covering them. He's covering them. And the symbol of atonement uh, for Adam and Eve meant that there is no forgiveness for your sin unless there is a shedding of blood. And so they were atoned for in their sins. There's two things that I want to I pull out here. First of all, is that it was God that made atonement. It wasn't man that made atonement. It wasn't man that saw that he was naked, right, and say, oh, I think I'd better kill something and cover myself up. Adam made a real hash job of it and tried to stitch fig leaves together to cover up his nakedness, and it didn't really work very well. It was God that took an animal, sacrificed it, and atoned. So it is God that starts and finishes atonement. It is not the work of man. It is the work of God and God alone. Secondly, If we have a look at the end of that passage there, it says, what would happen if they reach out and take from the tree of life and eat it? They will live forever. So what would happen if in that sinful state, they'd have taken from the tree of life and eaten of that fruit? You'd have had a situation where Adam and Eve would have been in eternal sin. And that is not what God ever intended for mankind. God never intended to be separated from his creation. In fact, God wanted a relationship with Adam and Eve. And so it was actually his mercy that he actually cut Adam and forced them out of the garden and away from the tree of life so that when they continued, they actually would die. That actually is a mercy, but it's also a judgment because God wanted to spend eternity with Adam and with Eve. The ultimate end of our salvation is that, in fact, that's exactly what happens, is that we enjoy eternal fellowship with God. And what we see with the cross, without the empty tomb, is that we've got a problem. Because if all we have is the symbol of the cross and no empty tomb, then we, have, we don't have any resurrection. And death becomes an insurmountable problem. Because sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve's sin. And when sin entered into the world, death entered into the world. So we've got a problem here. God wants to spend eternity with us, but we keep dying. So sin is an insurmountable problem. The cross covered over our sin. But without resurrection, we keep on dying. Benjamin Franklin said there are only two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. And we can be sure that every single one of us is going to die. All right? We absolutely know that. Romans 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The consequence of our sin, the consequences of our choices bring death. That is just the way it is. So I've got a question for you. If... Your sins have been forgiven, and yet you still die. What is more powerful, forgiveness or death? You're all very quiet. 
If your sins are being forgiven, but you still die, what's more powerful, sin or death? Death. Death is more powerful than simply forgiveness. Because in the end result, you die. Paul was faced with the same question from his churches. And this is how he answered in the letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 to 19. And if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty in your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ Jesus are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are to be more pitied than anyone else in the world. And further on down in verses 32, he says, And if there is no resurrection, let's feast and drink for tomorrow we die. This is a state of logic. You know, Paul is saying without the resurrection, then you're still lost in your sins. You may have had your, forgi- your sins forgiven. Christ may have atoned for your sins. And in fact, they went to the temple every year, the Jews. And the high priest used to make an atonement on the day of atonement and used to sacrifice for the sins of the entire nation every single year. But it only lasted for one year. They kept on having to do it. It wasn't until Jesus was resurrected that atonement overcame death. So it's logical. If there is no resurrection from the dead, if Christ had not been raised, then we're still lost. And all the effort that we put in to our lives of staying pure and keeping ourselves unspotted from sin, if we die and just go into the grave, what a waste. What a complete waste. We might as well eat and drink because tomorrow we die and it's all over, Red Rover. Night, night, nurse. The cross has no power without resurrection. The empty tomb shows us that Jesus defeated not only sin, but also death. If my sins have been defeated and Christ has defeated death, then what is the Christian hope? That's our question tonight. What is the Christian hope? And so we're going to move from the symbol of the cross now to the symbol of the empty tomb. The Christian hope is resurrection. In a nutshell, this is what Christian hope is. When Christ comes again, and Ross has already said, Jesus said that I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to rise again, and I'm going to go to be with my father, and then I'm coming back. So Jesus has said, I'm going to come back for you. And this is what it means. That when Christ comes again, believers are going to receive a new body. You're going to receive a new body when Jesus comes again. This is called the resurrection body. All right? This is where Christians are going to be glorified. When Christ comes in his glory, we are all going to be changed. And we will be, as, as the word puts it, we will be glorified. We're going to be just like Jesus. We're going to receive the same kind of body that Jesus has in his resurrection state. The only difference between the body that you've got and the one that you're going to get is that it's going to be incorruptible. It's going to be incorruptible. It means it's not going to be corrupted by sin. It's not going to suffer sickness and it's not going to suffer death. How awesome is that? And we're going to unpack that a little bit more in a moment. But Romans 8, verses 32 to 25. 
a 23 to 23 to 25 I was going backwards um, says this we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children including the new bodies which he has promised us we were given this hope when we were saved if we already have something then we don't need to hope for it but if we look forward to something that we don't yet have, then we must wait patiently and confidently. So the hope that we have is that Christ will give us a resurrection body, a body that looks just like his does right now, because he's alive and he's already got his, because he's already risen from the grave. And that's what ours is going to look like. But that's not the only Christian hope. It's also that God will complete the work of redemption. That's complete the work that Jesus has started by renewing the whole of the cosmos. God is going to renew the whole of the heavens and the earth as well. Because not only did Adam sin and sin entered into the human race, sin entered into the world. And sin has corrupted the world. So the world isn't actually the way that God intended it to be right now. So Part of the amazing thing which Jesus has done in redemption is not only is he going to change you, but he's also going to change the world and recreate it again. Our final state, this is in the end, our final state, the way that we end up, and our sure and certain hope is that we will spend eternity in a new body, in a new earth, and inside that earth, God is going to dwell with us. That is the Christian hope. 2 Peter 3 and 13 says, But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth as he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. So God is going to remove sin, not only from you, not only from your body, but from the entire world as well. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. That, my friends, is the Christian hope. That's something to rejoice about. That's something to sing about. That's something to celebrate. So when Jesus redeemed us at the cross, he didn't just save our souls, but he saved our bodies as well. For you and I, our salvation isn't going to be complete until our bodies are entirely set free from the effects of the fall and brought to a state of perfection for which God created them. That's good. The purpose of God right now, and he's working it right now, And we'll continue to work it until that comes a day when he comes again. That sin and the effects of sin are entirely got to be wiped out from you. Thank you, Jesus. I need that now. (laughs) The Christian hope is the hope of a bodily resurrection, just like Jesus is. Now, it's no surprise that we find the most detailed description of what this resurrection body is going to look like in 1 Corinthians and 15. Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, is addressing and correcting Greek philosophies that have crept into the church at Corinth. Some were denying that there would even be a resurrection. And there were certain other philosophies going around that had alternative views. And the church was kind of mixing the two and playing with the two. And so Paul begins to write and begin to correct the Corinthian church. Now, Plato, who's heard of Plato? Right, Plato is a Greek philosopher who, uh, who I can't remember exactly when he lived, but he 
preceded Christ anyway. He was born and died before Jesus. And his ideas were that the human body, was, uh, which is the flesh, right, the fleshly part of our human body, was evil. And that the spirit part of your body was pure. But it was trapped. It was trapped inside this flesh, this body. And at death, the body dies and releases the spirit to rise into the heavens. Right? That was what Platonic philosophy was all about. It was called dualism. And it regarded that the spirit and the body as two distinctly separate parts, a bit like a hermit crab that lives inside a shell. So rather than being one, you've just got the, the real thing, the hermit crab, and there's a shell on the outside, which is the body. Now the idea was that the immortal spirit, because the spirit was immortal, lived forever, lived inside this mortal shell, that philosophy is completely and utterly at odds with the scripture. The Bible mentions nothing like that whatsoever. In fact, quite the opposite. Firstly, the spirit of man was also corrupted at the fall and was cut off from the living God. So the spirit is not pure. Man's spirit is not pure. It's cut off from God. If the spirit were pure, then there would be no need for Christ to die because the real you would already be immortal. No need for Jesus to die at all. I said last time I preached, beware of philosophies and spiritual philosophies particularly which do, which, which, uh, do without the need of the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus died to reconcile you back to God. And this Greek philosophy was saying, you don't need that. You don't need that Jesus die. You don't need the blood of Jesus to cover you and atone for your sins because your spirit's already pure. That's complete heresy. And so Paul was correcting them in 1 Corinthians 15. So what does the Bible actually say about how the body's made up? Genesis 2 and 27 uh, sorry, Genesis 2 and 7 says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. The Hebrew word for living person, living person, is nephesh. It is often translated soul. At the point that Adam became nephesh was when God took dirt of the earth and he breathed the spirit, life, into the dirt. And it was the joining together of spirit and dirt that created nephesh. It was only the union, an indissoluble union between spirit and flesh that created a living soul. God did not create a body and stick life into it. That's Platonic philosophy. God breathed life into the dirt and it meshed together to create something completely new, a living soul. That's what the Bible teaches us. Adam was not a living human being until that happened. Thus the essence of humanity is not just spirit, but it is spirit joined with body. That's what the essence of humanity is. Your body does not merely house the real you. Your spirit and your body are as much a part of you as anything else. Your body is you. 
Your spirit is you. 2,000 years later, we still, in the Christian church today, are influenced by this Christoplatonism, this mixing together of Platonic ideas with Christian ideas and mixing the two. You might have heard it said, and I'll caution you, beware of preachers who say, I am a spirit living inside a body. Because it's not true. Because that is Christoplatonism. That is exactly what Paul is trying to address when he's talking about the resurrection. You are not a spirit trapped inside a body. You are a living being. Living being, indissoluble. The only thing that can separate spirit, soul, and body is the word of God. Nothing else. You can't, I can't, neither can death. Only the word of God can separate that. So anyway, let's get back. That was a bit of an excursus. Let's get back to the resurrection. If Christian hope for you is this, that in your thinking... When you die, your spirit goes to heaven and that's where you're going to spend eternity. You might want to review and revisit what your theology is on heaven and the afterlife because the Christian hope is not when you die, your spirit goes to heaven. Christian hope is resurrection. This is what Christian hope actually is. We don't have time to talk about the afterlife or the intermediate state, or anything else like that, because we really don't have time. Love to do it some other time, but we're going to concentrate now on resurrection. So there's not going to be a rescue from earth. You're not going to be rescued at death from earth. Rather, the Christian hope is that we participate in eternal community in as embodied earthly creatures that's what the christian hope is we spend eternal community together and with christ as embodied beings that's what the christian hope is not that you're a spirit floating around on a cloud in heaven that is not the christian hope r.a tory famous theologian wrote this we will not be disembodied spirits in the world to come but redeemed spirits in redeemed bodies in a redeemed universe. That's what we're going to be. That's the Christian hope. So when will the resurrection take place? When's it going to take place? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22 to 26. Paul says this, But there will be an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first fruits of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. It's going to happen when Jesus comes back. After that, the end will come, when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet, And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Moving on to verse 54. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, thus the scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, 
where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So when Christ comes again, we will be resurrected with him. He will come and we will receive a glorified body, a resurrection body, one which is just like Jesus's. And when that happens, death, the final enemy, will be put under. Death will no longer have any reign over your life. Death will have been completely and utterly defeated. So the question really is that if all this is going to happen, when at some point in the future, when Christ comes again, what about all those Christians who have already died? What's happened to them? What's going to happen to them? And I'm glad you asked the question. Because, because Paul actually answers it. The, uh, the Thessalonian church, this is one of the last letters that Paul actually wrote. And because one of the last letters, he actually deals with this. Because this is actually what they preached. This is the gospel message. The gospel message is that Christ did die for your sins rose again on the third day, he's coming back again, and you will receive a resurrection body, and you will live and reign with him for eternity. That is the gospel message which they preached. We kind of forget the last little bit. But that's actually what the gospel message was. And so this was the concern of the Thessalonians, because they thought that Jesus was coming imminently. They thought that Jesus was going to come again so soon that they would actually be alive when Jesus came again. And so they found that because it seemed to take a little while longer than they expected, some of those Christians had been martyred. Some of those Christians had been killed. Some of them had fallen asleep and died. And so they wrote a letter to Paul. And they said, Paul, if the resurrection is coming, have they missed out? Have they missed out on the resurrection? Are they just dead now? Are they just asleep and that's it? Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like the people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. So when they've died, they go to be with Jesus. Great news. And when he comes again, he's going to bring them back with him. We tell you this directly from the Lord. This isn't Paul making this up. They received this directly from the Lord himself that this is what was going to happen. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. So whether you die or whether you live, Jesus is coming again and you will receive a resurrection body. Because if you happen to go before then, all right, you will go to be with Jesus and he's going to come back and bring you with him. You're still going to get your body, all right? And the rest of us are going to rise up and meet you somewhere in the middle when Christ comes down. Interestingly enough, 
that meeting in the middle, this was uh, the word that they used there is a term which happened when a, a, a conquering army, uh, a general or something like that, went out and conquered. And, uh, and then when he was coming back into Rome or back into the city, they would send out dignitaries, all right? Because uh, they would send out dignitaries. So, so I'm the Roman general and I'm coming in with my conquering army. And so the city hears, hang on, the general's coming. We better send out uh, a, a posse to welcome him and honor him because he's bringing the army with it. And if we don't honor him, he's going to kill us. So they would send out people and they would meet them on the road and they would greet them. And then they would all process back into the city. So when Jesus comes again, he's leaving his abode in heaven and he's coming back to earth and we're going to go and meet him halfway and come back then. How good is that? How good is that? Some of you have always wanted to fly, haven't you? Death is the final enemy to be destroyed. But death does not have the final say for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Death is not the end. Death is just, uh, for us it's sleep. That's all it is. We just close our eyes and the next thing we know, there's Jesus. That's good news. That's good news. So what will our resurrection body be like? As I've already said, it's going to be like Jesus. Ross this morning when he was preaching uh, mentioned a number of things as we were reading through um, as Jesus uh, uh, you know, appeared to the disciples and to Martha and on the road to Emmaus and, and mentioned many of those things which Jesus did. He ate broiled fish and uh, you know, so he ate and then he appeared in the middle you know, and they all, they all were like, oh, oh, this must be his ghost. And Jesus told the disciples, he said, oh, look, I'm not a ghost, right? Touch me, feel me. This is me, the real me. This is a real body. This is the same body that hung on that tree, which is alive before you now. And he made them, he made them satisfy themselves that it really was him, the real Jesus, not a ghost, not a spirit, not some floaty entity which sits on fluffy clouds. It was a real bodily Jesus, resurrected and not bleeding. So it's going to be like his. Not only that, but Jesus also appeared and then disappeared. Jesus, in his resurrection body, seems to be able to go before the presence of God in heaven and then appear in the presence of man. So he can sort of go between heaven and earth in the twinkling of an eye. There doesn't seem to be the same limitations, thank you, Lord, that we have in our own bodies. I'm looking forward to mine. I don't know about you. This is going to be a serious upgrade. The empty tomb is the ultimate proof that Jesus Christ's resurrection body was the same body that died on the cross. If resurrection meant that it was a completely new creation, a completely and utterly new body, then Jesus' original body would have still remained in the tomb. But it didn't. The same body that was on the cross came back to life because the Holy Spirit quickened it and transformed it and changed it. Jesus challenged the disciples, as I've said, to satisfy themselves that it really, truly was him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44, Paul starts giving some details about what this resurrection body is going to be like for those of us who remain. He says, our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die. 
but they will be raised to life forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. Just, uh, verse 49. Just as we are now like the earthly man, talking of Adam, just like we are like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man, Jesus. What I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. Right here, Paul is saying that God's plan and purpose for humanity, right from the very beginning, God's plan of redemption from creation right the way through to the end, is that he lives with you in eternal community. And that eternity means that we are going to have to have bodies which are fit for eternity. And your body is not fit for eternity. Look at it. It's fallen out on the edges. Bits are sagging where you didn't used to sag. You're much more wrinkly and grey-haired than you used to be. You are not fit for eternity. But your resurrection body will be fit for eternity because it's not going to perish. You have inside your body, even though it is failing, even though it is growing old, you have inside the body your blueprint for your resurrection body. It's going to be you. It's not going to be something completely different. It is going to be you. It'll be recognizably you. It'll still be your body, but it just ain't going to have all those lumpy bits. It's going to be a resurrection body. Like I said, this is going to be one heck of an upgrade. You're going to be better able to serve and glorify God and enjoy eternity and the wonders that God has prepared for you. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those that love him. It is going to be amazing. It is going to be more than you could possibly think or imagine, and you're going to have the body to enjoy it. I tell you, when you get your new resurrection body, you're going to be jumping around like a calf in a stall. You're going to have so much boundless energy. Some of you haven't jumped for years. You're going to be jumping with, with joy because of the life that is in you. You've got aches and pains now, but you're not going to have aches and pains in your resurrection body. You're not going to have dicky knees in the, in the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21 verses 1 to 7 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, 
God's home is now among his people. And we will live with them. And he will live with them. And they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. (laughs) And they all said, Amen. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, this is Jesus. I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And then he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. All who are thirsty, I will freely give from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious, will inherit all these blessings and I will be their God and they will be my children. Jesus is coming again and he's bringing his bride with him. Thank you, Jesus. So that is the symbol of the empty tomb. We now go on to the third symbol and the third symbol is fire from heaven. This is the symbol of the Holy Spirit, the symbol of Pentecost. The cross, without the empty tomb, means that we are still in our sins. The cross, plus the empty tomb, pushes out Christian hope to the end of the age. But the cross, plus the empty tomb, plus Pentecost, brings hope now. It brings that future hope into the reality of our lives now. The future promises and the future kingdom and the powers of the age to come are yours now because Pentecost has come, because the Holy Spirit has been poured out amongst us. It brings hope from the future to now. Romans 8 and verses 23 to 25 says, and we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, a foretaste of future glory. Holy Spirit, the precious presence of the Holy Spirit, it's just a foretaste. We had chili tasting this morning, right? That is just a foretaste of what you're going to experience tomorrow morning, all right? The Holy Spirit is just a taster of what it's going to be like and it's going to be better than chili I'll tell you that now the sending of the spirit at Pentecost and the subsequent baptism of the spirit has always been a sign that the kingdom of God has broken into our fallen world Hebrews 4-5 Hebrews talks about those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. That is our experience. As spirit-filled believers, we have tasted the heavenly gift and we have experienced the powers of the age that is to come. And we taste it in measure now and we will have the fullness of it when Christ comes. Now in the new earth, there will be no sin. There will be no sickness. 
There will be no disease and there will be no death. And the Holy Spirit empowers you to do what? Heal the sick, raise the dead and cast out demons. Because the age that is to come has broken into our world today. And these are what the signs, the wonders and the miracles are. They point forward to the reality and the promise of what Christ has said is going to happen. I will come. And the kingdom will be yours and it will be eternal. And he's given us a foretaste and given us the powers of the age to come to experience and taste right now. That is good news. Because we don't have to wait until we die. We don't have to wait until Jesus comes again. We've got it now. Hallelujah. Why does God tarry? Why, if he's given us a foretaste now, does he wait? Why has he tarried 2,000 years? Why will he tarry for some time more? However long, I don't know. Why? Because Jesus wants as many as possible to come to know him and to come and enjoy eternity with him. And that's why the Holy Spirit gives us a great commission that we're to go out and we're to seek the lost. We're to go out into the highways and the byways. We're to go out into our city, out into the marketplace, and we're to tell the good news because Christ is coming. And folks, we don't know when. He might come while we're here right now. He might come in 50 years' time, but it doesn't matter because Christ's heart burdens for the lost and the Holy Spirit burdens for the lost. And if you have the Holy Spirit in you, start burdening for the lost because if you can glimpse eternity, there are those who aren't going. That is the reality. There are those who will reject Jesus. There are those who are going to reject the promise of eternal life. There are those who will miss out. But Jesus is tarrying because he wants as many to come as will come. The fact that you have received the Holy Spirit guarantees your participation, not only in the end times, but in this great soul harvest, which is already here. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 4 to 5. Paul writes, For while we are in this tent, meaning his body, this earthly body, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed. That's disembodied. That's a spirit without a body. We do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. That's your resurrection body. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. You've been given the Holy Spirit. It is a guarantee that this is going to happen. Guaranteeing your resurrection body. Guaranteeing that you have a future with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit in you is preparing you right now for the new heaven and the new earth. He is preparing you. All those things, the purity that he's bringing into your life, the casting off of the sin, all these things is a preparation for eternity because you've got eternity living with him. 2 Corinthians 5.17, one of my favorite, in fact, it was the first verse I ever learned off my heart. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. 
The old is gone and the new is here. So this is the promise of the Spirit, that you don't have to wait until Jesus comes again. Because if you have the Spirit, you've already got the down payment now. You already have eternity now. You're already a new creation now. Your life is already hidden with Christ in God now. Eternity starts now. And we can live not only for eternity right now, but in the same power resurrection. Band, come back. Shall we carry on? I've got another three pages to go. <laughs> now you've heard enough. You've got enough. There's so much more. Honestly, when I was preparing this, it wasn't, what do I say, Lord? It's what do I leave out? Because the word is full. It is absolutely full. There is so much more which you're going to enjoy studying. So much more. If you have received Christ and are born again of the Holy Spirit, you don't need to fear death. Death has no hold on you anymore. You don't need to fear the future because your future is already secure. That God has stored up for you a wonderful new body without any aches, without any pains. No more failing kidneys. No more back aches. There is no cancer in your new body. There is no drug addictions. Brand new body. Brand new life. That body will inhabit a new earth. And God's new earth, God is going to inhabit with his people. It isn't going to be us on earth and God in heaven. God is going to be living with us. With us. Read Revelation 21 again. God is with us. His temple is with us. Every time you doubt that this is the reality, every time that you doubt whether Christ is coming again, every time you doubt that you have a wonderful future secured for you, just start speaking in tongues. Because that it will remind you that you've got the down payment guaranteeing what's going to happen. And that it is not a distant future hope. It isn't pie in the sky in the by and by. It is right here, right now, put into effect by the Holy Spirit. Let's stand and let's sing. Stay tuned for another exciting podcast brought to you by Bayside Christian Church.